Well, hey, everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. Now, over the last few episodes of our podcast, we have been exploring some of the events that take place during Holy Week. And we've been exploring these events because Holy Week is one of the most difficult times in the history of our faith. So by exploring these events, we're trying to see how we can follow God when we face difficult times in our lives. And in today's episode, we are digging into the biggest event that takes place during Holy Week. And that's Jesus' crucifixion. But today we're specifically going to be thinking about the two people that are crucified beside Jesus on the day that we've come to call Good Friday. And we're going to see that these two criminals have very different reactions as they face the most difficult time in their life. And by seeing how they react, we can learn how we need to react when we face hard times in our life. So let's get right into this episode sermon. So over the last few weeks here at Melbourne Heights, we have been exploring some of the events that take place during Holy Week. And we've been exploring these events from Holy Week for a reason. Holy Week is without a doubt one of the most difficult times in the entire history of our faith. During Holy Week, Jesus was on the verge of being arrested, put on trial, convicted, and executed. And Jesus knew that all of these things were going to happen. But the incredible thing that is, even though Jesus knew that all of these things were about to happen to him, that he didn't let any of these things keep him from following God during this difficult time. So by looking at some of the events that take place during Holy Week, we get to see how Jesus continued to follow God, even in one of the most difficult times during his time here on this earth. And we can learn how we can follow God during those difficult times, too. And let's just be honest here. We all need to know how we can follow God during difficult times because we all face difficult times in our lives. So by exploring these these stories and events from Holy Week, that's what we're doing. We're learning how to follow God in difficult times. So over the last few weeks, we have talked about things like Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we've seen that we can follow God in difficult times by remembering that no matter what the world may bring, that Jesus is always our king and that God is always in control. And we've explored the story of Jesus entering into the temple in Jerusalem and clearing out the money changers and the animal vendors. And we've learned from that that to follow God during difficult times in our life, that it's okay if we get angry. But if our anger isn't righteous like Jesus's was, we have to let it go. And we've explored the story of Jesus passing by a fig tree on his way into the city of Jerusalem and finding that that tree wasn't producing any fruit. Jesus caused that fig tree to wither up and to die. And that story tells us that to follow God during difficult times in our life, we have to produce fruit, spiritual fruit, in our lives as well. And last Sunday, we spent our time together exploring the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet before the Last Supper began. And that story shows us that to follow God during difficult times, we have to serve other people, and we have to love other people. But this week, this week we are moving on to the biggest event that takes place during Holy Week. Today we're going to start talking about Jesus' crucifixion. And we actually know quite a bit about Jesus' crucifixion, because there are four books inside of the Bible that tell us about Jesus' crucifixion. 
These four books are the first four books that you find in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call these four books the Gospels. We call them Gospels because the word gospel means good news. And these four books tell us the good news of who Jesus is. So these four books, they're basically biographies of Jesus. So inside of the Gospels, you're going to find stories about Jesus' baptism and Jesus' birth. You're going to find stories about Jesus' ministry, and you'll find stories about the miracles that Jesus performs. And you'll also find a lot of details about the crucifixion. But here's the thing. Because there are four different books inside of the Bible that tell us about Jesus' crucifixion, we don't exactly have time during one sermon to dig into all of them. So instead of exploring what happens in all four of the Gospels, we're going to take a closer look at the way that two of the Gospels relay the events and details of what happens during the crucifixion. And I want to start by looking at the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to start reading in Mark chapter 15 and in verse 22 to see Mark's account of the crucifixion. So let's look at what Mark writes. Mark writes, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. Now, the Gospel of Mark doesn't go into a whole lot of details about what Jesus' crucifixion would have been like. And there's a reason for that. The first people that would have read the Gospel of Mark, the original readers or hearers of this Gospel, they would have known all about crucifixions because they would have seen them countless times throughout their lives. But we don't. We've never seen a crucifixion. The reality is that we are almost 2,000 years removed from when Jesus was actually crucified. And we are almost 1,700 years removed from the time when Constantine, the Roman emperor, banned the practice of crucifixion once and for all. So we in the 21st century, we do not understand the crucifixion the same way that Mark's original audience would have. So we need to spend a little bit of time talking about what the cross was really like. And we need to do that because we in the church have turned the cross into little more than just a symbol of our faith. So we've turned the cross into a shiny symbol that we stick up on top of our buildings so that people will know that we're a church when they're driving by down the street. Or we've turned the cross into a symbol that's nothing more than a little gold or silver trinket that hangs at the bottom of a necklace so that people will know what we believe. Or we've turned the cross into a symbol that we use as a marketing tool and slap on our websites or bumper stickers so that people will think that a business is trustworthy, even if they're not. So we need to spend some time talking about what the cross was really like today. Because we need to understand that the cross is not this pristine, elegant symbol of our faith. Instead, the cross was bloody. The cross was brutal. The cross was nothing but painful. And the truth is, the cross was all those things and more. The cross became Rome's preferred method of mass execution, and they used it across the entire Roman Empire for over 800 years. And over the course of those 800 years, there is no doubt that hundreds of thousands of people at least were crucified in Rome. 
As a matter of fact, we know that during Israel's final failed attempt to overthrow the Roman government and to reclaim their own kingdom, that it said that there were more people crucified around Jerusalem. There were so many people that died on the cross that they literally ran out of wood to build another cross with. Now think about that for just a second. At one point in time, there were so many people that were crucified around the city of Jerusalem that they ran out of wood. Now, there's a chance that that story is hyperbole, but it, it doesn't change the fact that there were so many people that were crucified across the Roman world that we can't even begin to fathom how many people died this way. The cross was Rome's preferred method of capital punishment. But why is that? Why was the cross Rome's preferred method of capital punishment? Well, the Roman emperor Tiberius, who just so happened to be the emperor in Rome at the same time that Jesus was crucified, actually didn't believe that capital punishment was punishment at all. In Tiberius' mind, he believed that death was an escape. So in order for a capital punishment to really be a punishment, the victim had to suffer as much as they possibly could before they died. That's exactly what happened on the cross. That's why the Roman philosopher Seneca, who again was a contemporary of Jesus, said that if you knew that you were going to be arrested and crucified, you might be better off thinking about taking your own life instead. And it's why the historian Josephus, who is the most famous historian around Jesus' time, tells us that the cross was the most pitiable of deaths. That's what the cross was like. The cross was a horrifying way to die. The cross was a terrifying way to die. The cross was an excruciatingly painful way to die. Truman Davis, who is a medical doctor, has actually done research into the physical effects that the cross would have taken on a person's body. And he writes specifically about what Jesus would have experienced as he was being crucified. So let me share with you what Dr. Davis writes. He says, as the arms that were stretched out fatigued, great waves of cramps would sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, agonizing, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability for a person, for Jesus, to pull himself upward, hanging by his arms, his pectoral muscles, which are the muscles that connect your chest to your arms, they would have been paralyzed. In the intercostal muscles, which are the muscles that run in between your rib cages, they would have been unable to act. Air could be drawn into your lungs, but it couldn't be exhaled. So Jesus would have fought to raise himself up on the cross in order just to draw another breath. Finally, carbon dioxide would build up in his lungs and in his bloodstream, and his cramps would partially subside. Spasmatically, he'd be able to push himself upward and exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. This would go on for hours of limitless pain, of cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he continued to pull himself up and down that rough timber used to make the cross. And then another agony would begin. A deep crushing pain in the pericardium, around which is the membrane, the fluid membrane that encloses our heart, would slowly fill with serum, and it would begin to compress Jesus' heart. At that point, it would almost be over. 
the loss of tissue fluid would have reached a critical level. The compressed heart would be struggling to pump thick, heavy, sluggish blood into his body. The tortured lungs would be making a frantic effort to gasp even small amounts of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues would send their flood of stimuli to Jesus' brain. Now, that's a pretty horrifying description of what would have happened to Jesus as he hung on the cross. But it's not even the whole story. Dr. Davis doesn't actually go into detail about how Jesus would have died and how most victims of the cross would have died during the crucifixion. The reality is that ultimately people would die because after hanging on the cross for hours at a time, their muscles would be so fatigued. They would be in so much pain and agony that they could no longer pull themselves up to take another breath. So the weight of their own head would fall upon them and choke out their oxygen, literally strangling a victim of a crucifixion to death. It's hard to hear, but that's what the cross is really like. That's the death that Jesus experienced because of us and for us. But what we in the church sometimes forget is that Jesus isn't the only person who experienced crucifixion. I mean, I've already pointed out to you in the sermon that over the course of 800 years, that literally hundreds of thousands of people at least were crucified by the Roman Empire. But we in the church, we sometimes convince ourselves that Jesus is the only one who ever experienced this kind of pain and suffering and agony. And it's kind of incredible that we can convince ourselves that Jesus is the only one who was ever crucified because when you actually read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus wasn't even the only person that was crucified on the day that we've come to call Good Friday. If we look together at Luke chapter 23, you'll see exactly what I mean. So Luke 23, and I just want to share with you verse 32. Here's what Luke writes. They also led two other criminals to be executed with Jesus. So there are two other criminals who are crucified beside Jesus on Good Friday. Now, the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't tell us much at all about these criminals. Luke doesn't tell us who these criminals were. He doesn't tell us what crime they may have committed that led to their execution. All that Luke tells us about these two individuals is that they're criminals who were crucified right beside Jesus. But just by knowing that they were crucified right beside Jesus, we do know something about these two criminals. We know that they experienced the same kind of pain that Jesus experienced. We know that they experienced the same kind of suffering that Jesus experienced. We know that they experienced the same agonizing death that Jesus experienced. And what we'll see as we continue to read the story is that even though these two criminals experienced the same suffering and death that Jesus experienced, they respond to this difficult time in their life in very different ways. So I want to start by taking a look at how the first criminal responds to this difficult time in his life. And we find this account in Luke 23, verse 39. Here's what Luke writes. One of the criminals, hanging next to Jesus, insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
So in the face of the pain and the suffering and the agony that he is facing, the first criminal lashes out at Jesus. In the translation that I just read for you, we're told that he insulted Jesus. But I just want to say here that the word that's translated as insulted here, it doesn't do justice to the actual Greek word. The Greek word in this passage is the Greek word blasphemeo, which clearly is where our word blasphemy comes from. And what blasphemy means is it means that you say something about God that is completely untrue and it's also demeaning. And that's what this first criminal does. He says things about Jesus that are untrue and demeaning, so he commits blasphemy against Jesus. And he does that by challenging and questioning Jesus' very identity. He wonders if Jesus is the Messiah and if Jesus is even capable of saving anyone at all. And I know that when we hear that, to those of us that have gathered together to worship online right now, that this first criminal's response, it sounds a little bit harsh. But when you stop and you think about what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, I think you'll understand why the first criminal responds this way. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how we respond when we face difficult times in our lives. And there is no doubt that this first criminal is experiencing a far more difficult time in his life than any of us can even begin to imagine, let alone experience for ourselves. This criminal is hanging on the cross. He is dying an agonizingly painful and excruciatingly slow death. And as he's experiencing that, he lashes out at Jesus. He questions God. He wonders if faith can help him one bit at all. Or to put it as simply as I can for you, this first criminal responds to the difficult time he's facing by turning his back on God. And let's just be honest here. There are plenty of people who respond that exact same way when they're going through a difficult time today. There are plenty of people who question God. There are plenty of people who wonder if faith can help them at all through these difficult times. There are plenty of people who decide that they're going to turn their back on God when they go through tough times. But that's only one of the reactions that the criminals have inside of this passage. And I want to share with you now the way that the second criminal responds. We see his response in Luke chapter 23 verse 40. Here's what Luke writes. Responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him, the first criminal. Don't you fear God? Seeing that you've also been sentenced to die, we are rightly condemned, for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So in this passage, the first criminal lashes out at Jesus as he's dying on the cross. The first criminal commits blasphemy against Jesus as he is dying on the cross. The first criminal turns his back on God as he is dying on the cross. But that's not how the second criminal reacts. The second criminal, we're told, speaks harshly to the first criminal. And again, as we dig deeper into what this word means in Greek, it, it reveals a little bit more about what's happening in this passage. The Greek word that's translated as spoke harshly here is better understood as corrected. 
So what the second criminal does is he corrects the first criminal the same way that a parent would correct a child who is acting up or behaving irresponsibly. And he does this for a reason. The second criminal looks at what's happening and he realizes that he and the first criminal, that they've both done things that have hurt other people. He understands that they have both done things that could be considered evil. He understands that they have both done things that are wrong and that they deserve their punishment. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus hasn't done anything to hurt someone else. Jesus hasn't done anything that could be considered evil. Jesus hasn't done any wrong whatsoever, and he does not deserve to be crucified. So the second criminal, he points this out. He corrects the misunderstanding of that first criminal. And by doing so, we see that he responds completely differently than the first criminal. The second criminal's hard time drives him toward Jesus, not away from Jesus. The second criminal's hard time drives him toward Jesus, not away from Jesus. It's completely different than the way that that first criminal reacts. And then, after the second criminal corrects the thinking of the first criminal, He does something completely astonishing to me. He turns to Jesus and he asks Jesus to remember him when Jesus comes into his kingdom that day. And now I want to share with you the way that Jesus responds to the second criminal. Because Jesus' response is not only incredible, it also teaches us so much about who our God is. So Jesus responds to him this way in Luke 23, verse 43, where Luke tells us, Jesus replied, I assure you that today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I need to point this out to you because I don't want you to miss the irony of what happens in this particular event. Okay, what happens in this story is the first criminal. The first criminal looks at Jesus and he questions Jesus. He challenges Jesus. He wonders if Jesus is capable of saving anyone at all. And what does Jesus do inside of this passage? Jesus does the unthinkable here. Jesus actually saves the second criminal. He saves the criminal who treats him like he is the Messiah. But that's not all that's happening in this particular passage of Scripture either. It's not all that happens here. Because not only does Jesus allow this second criminal to enter into heaven with us, with him, Jesus also, Jesus also makes sure that the second criminal realizes something that will help all of us as we're struggling to figure out how we can follow God in difficult times. Because when Jesus tells the second criminal that today you will be with me in paradise, He tells the second criminal that God is with him even in the most difficult moment that he has ever faced. And I'm not just saying that because God is literally hanging on the cross beside him. Jesus, who is God-made flesh, is there with him. No, what's happening here is that even in the depths of his pain and his suffering, God is showing him through Jesus' response that today you will be with me in paradise that there is no pain that you can experience that will separate you from God. There is no suffering that you can go through that will separate you from God. There is no hard time that you can face 
that can possibly keep you away from God. The same thing is true for us. There is no difficult time that we can face that will keep us from God. So no matter what hard time you're going through right now, you might be going through a hard time with your health, or you may be going through a hard time when it comes to your finances and feel like you're on the verge of having to file for bankruptcy, or maybe you feel like you're never going to be able to pay off your student loans, or maybe you're going through a hard time in some of your relationships and you've hit a rough spot in your marriage, or maybe you're wondering if you're ever going to be able to repair the relationship you have with your parents or with your kids. No matter what hard time you're facing, even if it's just because we're living through a pandemic, still, God is still with you. God is always with you. But what you have to decide is how you're going to respond. And we see in the story the two ways that we can respond. We can respond like the first criminal, or we can respond like the second criminal. When you're going through a difficult time, you can turn away from God, or you can turn toward God. When you're going through a difficult time, you can turn away from God or you can turn toward God. But here's what I want you to know. God's still there either way. Whether you choose to turn toward God or away from God, God doesn't go anywhere. No matter, what, no matter how hard a time you're going through, God is still there. No matter how difficult your life may feel, God is still there. There is nothing that can separate you from God period. That's just reality for us. But we see in this story that the first criminal and the second criminal respond in two very different ways. The first criminal turns away from God, and we don't know how his story ends. The second criminal turns toward God, and because he turns toward God, we see that God is waiting for him, arms wide open to welcome him home. And we know that for those of us who believe in Jesus and commit our lives to following him, that we'll see him on the other side of eternity. But once again, you have to choose. You have to choose whether you'll turn away from God or you'll choose to turn toward God. But I want you to remember that one way or the other, God is always with you. God is never going to leave you. And if you turn toward God in life's most difficult times, you'll find that God is there for you just like Jesus was there for the second criminal that was dying on the cross. God is there with arms wide open, waiting to welcome you home, waiting to help you through whatever you may face. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this word of prayer, we are just so thankful for the story that we've read today. We are so thankful for the way that the second criminal responds as he is facing one of the most difficult times in his life. God, we see that he makes the choice to turn toward you. And my prayer, God, is that whenever we face tough times in our lives, no matter what those tough times may be, that we make that same choice, that we turn toward you instead of turning away from you. Because God, when we turn towards you, you're there for us. Your arms are open for us, waiting to welcome us, waiting to help us through whatever tough time it is that we're facing. So God, help us to trust in you. Help us to turn towards you so that you can help us through whatever we face. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has challenged you to think about how you react when you're facing difficult times in your life, and that it's challenged you to always turn toward God instead of away from God. Because when you turn toward God when you face hard times, God is right there waiting for you with arms wide open, and he's going to help you make it through. Now, next week, we are going to be finishing up our exploration of the events that take place during Holy Week. And we're going to be thinking about the story of how Jesus made it from where he was put on trial to where he was ultimately crucified and what it was like for him to carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. So we hope that you'll come back and join us next week when that episode drops. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, our next episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And don't forget that you can worship with us every Sunday morning online at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our church website. You can find us at mhbclouisville.com slash live. So until next week, I hope that you guys have a great week this week, and we will see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.